Matthew 27, verse 33, let us hear the word of God. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross." Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, 
They feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. It is the word of the living God, and may the Lord add his blessing to the public reading of his infallible word for his name's sake. Let's bow together in prayer. Now, our Father, we humble ourselves in thy holy presence. We rejoice that through the merits of Christ, we have access to thy holy throne. And we pray that today, as we come to consider the message of thy word, thou wilt be pleased by the power of thy spirit to write this message in our hearts. Oh, give grace for the proclamation of thy truth today. We pray that thou wilt use thy word in every soul for the advancement of thy kingdom, for the conversion of lost souls, and for the building up of the people of God. O Lord, we wait upon thee. Grant that thou wilt come now and fill me with thy spirit's power to the very uttermost, for the proclamation of thy truth, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take as our text verses 52 and 53 of Matthew 27. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. The events that followed immediately the death of Jesus Christ marked it as the most extraordinary death in history. They expressed the enormity of Christ's death as the central act in the saga of the ages. The rending of the veil of the temple signified the opening of the way into the holiest of all through the blood of Jesus. For well over a thousand years, never did anyone see into the holiest of all, let alone enter it, unless he was of the priestly clan. The rending of the veil was a miracle, not only because of its thickness, but also because the rending went from the top to the bottom. God signified by this act that the way to commune with God lay open to all people, both Jews and Gentiles. They could enter the holiest of all, regardless of social or economic class, or race, or ethnic background. That event gave sufficient testimony to the significance of Christ's death. But there were dramatic effects, as we read, in the outdoors as well. The earth shook 
so violently that boulders split into pieces. The upheavals in the earth that followed the death of Christ were the sign that no other death before or after had such an impact. Think of it. Not all the assassinations that have occurred from the ancient world to the modern can match the life-changing power of the death of Jesus. Some of those assassinations have led to war and to untold numbers of deaths. Two atomic bombs unleashed their unprecedented power on Japan at the end of World War II. Well over 100,000 people lost their lives in those blasts. But without minimizing those deaths, the earthquake at Calvary meant that the death of Jesus transcended all other deaths. The Roman soldiers who carried out the orders of Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus of Nazareth were veterans of such responsibilities. They saw deaths so many times that nothing seemed to disturb their hardness. But the manner of Christ's death and the upheaval that followed it, as we read, so impressed the centurion and those under his command that they trembled with fear and confessed that the man that they impaled on the center cross was truly the Son of God. The first two signs of which we have read pose no difficulty for the commentators on this passage. But there was a third event that happened upon the death of Christ, of which we read in our text, and it became the subject of speculation. Only the inspired Apostle Matthew recorded the details of the three events that occurred immediately after the death of Christ. Only the third event has produced speculation about its meaning. And I venture to say, I know it's true for me, you may never have heard any sermon on this text. Along with the splitting of the rocks by the force of the earthquake, the graves were opened. And the graves that were opened, we read, were the resting places of bodies of the saints of God. We don't learn who those saints were. So there is the first cause for speculation. The Spirit of God did not identify them. The Spirit of God said that they arose from their graves and eventually went into the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, after Christ's resurrection and appeared to many people there. And there is cause for more speculation. To whom did they appear? How long did the risen saints remain in Jerusalem? What happened to them? 
afterward. Then there is the cause for speculation about the exact timing of their resurrection and the timing of their entrance to the holy city. However, grappling with those speculations surrounding our text can miss the impact of this third event. God's testimony is that the achievement of Jesus in his death was the destruction of the last great enemy of Christ's saints. Paul's testimony was clear, as we may read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let us turn briefly to 1 Corinthians 15. And to verse 54. So when this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The 17th century Puritan John Owen preached often and wrote prolifically. His writings were weighty and still bear careful examination now, nearly four centuries after he wrote them. One book for which Owen gained a reputation as an eminent theologian dealt with the question of the extent of the atonement. He titled it, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It is the definitive exposition of the doctrine of particular redemption, or as more popularly known, limited atonement. The Lord has not led us to a survey of that book today. It would take a very long time. But I want to borrow part of the title today and ponder the remarkable event in our text as the death of death. The commentators who have waded into the varied ideas about this third event include men across the range of history. John Calvin reviewed the possibilities for interpretation, but seemed unwilling to commit to any single view. During the latter part of the 20th century, William Hendrickson's detailed commentary on the Gospel of Matthew appeared. He presented a survey of the major views along with the problems he perceived in each of them. Some people denied that there was any actual resurrection, but that God took some bodies out of their graves to display after Christ's death. But as Hendrickson observed, this text says that the bodies of those saints were raised and that they went into the holy city. Another commentator suggested that this resurrection did not happen until after Christ's resurrection. The problem with that view is that the other two signs that Matthew recorded happened immediately after Christ's death. 
So to argue for the delay of the third event is not consistent with the language of the text. Another commentator suggested that this resurrection was not with immortal bodies, meaning that those raised soon returned to their graves. How then did they appear unto many? And why is there no mention of their return to their graves? This event, like the other two that Matthew recorded in this passage, signified the impact of Christ's death. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross marked the breaking of the bands of mortality that flowed from the fall in the Garden of Eden. We cannot understand some aspects of this miracle that followed the death of Christ, but we learn from this text that his death was the death of death for all of Christ's people. The resurrection of these saints became a small token of the resurrection of all of Christ's people on the day of his second coming. The people of Jerusalem who encountered these risen saints could not forget for the rest of their lives the demonstration of the power that is in the death of Christ. This text confronts us with the reality of sin's wages for which sin, Christ's sufferings were the only cure. And those sufferings in turn became the basis for life's victory. And I want you to consider those main ideas with me in that order. First of all, sin's wages. We read in our text that many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Biblical language often uses sleep as a symbol of death. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. The disciples, being the literalists that they were, said, Well, if he sleeps, he will do well. He'll get better. But the Lord said to them, Lazarus is dead. Here we read, many bodies of the saints which slept arose. The limiting factor in knowing who they were was that they were in graves in the environs of Jerusalem. The other part of the limiting factor is that they were saints. Those that arose were saints. That is, they were Old Testament believers who, like Abraham, died in faith in the promised and coming Redeemer. But they were dead, possibly some of them for a very long time. Hebrews had occupied Jerusalem since the early period of King David's reign. That was just over a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And it could be that among those saints who rose from the dead were people from every point of that history. 
But I think it more likely that the saints who arose lived closer in time to the event that our text describes, making it more likely that the people of Jerusalem may have recognized at least some of them. Whatever the case, their souls were with the Lord in paradise since the time of their physical deaths, but their bodies were in their graves. And that they were in their graves was the reminder that the appointment of which the Bible speaks is real. We read of that appointment in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It was the appointment to which all come until the day of Christ's appearing. God's testimony to Adam and Eve was that rebellion against the Creator would lead to death. He said, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The devil, of course, denied that statement. But when they sinned against God, they died. Initially, they died spiritually. Ultimately, they died physically, even after living for centuries. So that Adam lived 930 years. And no doubt during all those years, people thought, well, he hasn't died yet, so maybe he won't. Maybe what God said will not come to pass. But then came the report, Adam died. The New Testament also stated the fact and the result of sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Romans 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Wages accrue when the condition for the payment of those wages occurs. The wages for sin is death. If you have sinned, you're going to die. The physical death of the saints is the final payment of those wages. The miracle that our text describes expounds then the certainty of death and the grave. It's the result of the fall. And there are people 
who spend a lot of money and time and effort to try to avoid that reality. But the fact is that the only remedy for those wages lies in the death of Jesus Christ. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that this miracle happened in the immediate aftermath of the death of Jesus points our attention to all that Christ accomplished for his people by his death. Sin's wages. But that leads us to consider the second aspect of our text, Christ's sufferings. The inspired apostle Matthew provided much more detail about the parts of Christ's sufferings than you will find in the other Gospels. In the other two synoptic Gospels or in the Gospel of John. John provides some detail that we don't find elsewhere. In the other Gospels we do learn some other things, but in the passage we read, Matthew 27, 33 through 50, we encounter those things that underline the excruciating nature of Christ's sufferings. Those sufferings were the theme of the prophets from Adam, who was the first of the prophets, to Christ including John the Baptist, whom many have called rightly the last Old Testament prophet. Those prophecies pointed to Christ as the Lamb of God, as the one slain from before the foundation of the world. Peter wrote in his first epistle, that the prophets themselves did not understand the extent of all that they wrote. Let us turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The sufferings of Christ, the theme of all prophecy. Those sufferings encompassed Every bitter instance he endured, as we have read, on Calvary. They included the shame 
of his humiliation, that he should be numbered with the transgressors. They included his refusal, of which we read, to drink anything that would deaden his anguish. That drink that he was offered was designed to deaden pain. He would not drink it. His sufferings included the curses of those crucified on either side of him and the mockery of the onlookers and their taunting of him. And then in those three hours of darkness of which we read, Jesus endured the horrific fury of the Father against him because Christ undertook to be the substitute to bear the sins of all his people for all time and to be the sacrifice for those sins. And during those three terrible hours, he endured that awful torment. We cannot describe adequately the depth of his sufferings, but we can recognize that in those hours, Jesus paid the wages of all our sins. It was the only way to secure our salvation. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. We read in Matthew 27 of the actual death of Christ in verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, we know what he said because we read of it in John's Gospel, chapter 19. It was the single word in the Greek to telestai. It is finished. All that he came to accomplish for his saints was finished. And so he came to die. As we read here in verse 50, he yielded up the ghost. The only one who ever, by an act of his own will, died. He controlled the very moment of his death. He had finished the suffering. All that God demanded to pay the wages for his people's sins, he did. Take comfort today in that truth. The devil is very capable of playing the game of dredging up all of your sins and bringing you to a state of depression and discouragement. But Jesus did pay everything. 
The saints who arose upon the death of Christ found liberation from death and from the fear of death to which they were in bondage in their mortal lives. I don't care what anyone says. People fear the coming of death. Christ's sufferings put to death the death that is the wages of sin. The resurrection of many saints on that occasion expounded the ultimate achievement of Christ's death. And that's the third aspect of our text today, life's victory. The demonstration of this victory is evident in the word that occurs in verse 52, where we read that many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and at the end of verse 53, were that these who arose, having gone into the holy city, appeared unto many. It's the word many. Many bodies of the sleeping saints arose. So that the impact of Christ's death extended beyond one or two cases. Many bodies of the saints arose. I have to confess that for years I have thought about this text and didn't know what to make of it. But I like what Hendrickson observed in his commentary. Finally, this sign too, like those described in verse 51 And 52a is prophetic. It shows Christ's death guarantees our glorious resurrection at Christ's return. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in that chapter that we referenced earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, at the last trumpet, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and those who are believers in Christ living at that moment will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This miracle that the death of Christ is the guarantee that all of Christ's people will rise to immortality on the day of Christ's appearing. Not many will challenge the meaning of the text. But some people always have details they want to have filled in. They want to know, well, what happened to the risen saints afterward? Did they go into the holy city right away as soon as they were raised? If not, where did they go until they entered the holy city? And when they did enter the holy city, what was the experience of the many people who encountered the risen saints? And what became of those saints later? The key phrase in the text is in verse 53, after his resurrection. Now the question is, does that phrase go with what comes before it? Or with what comes after it. 
Are we to take that phrase in connection with the coming out of the graves or the going into the holy city? Did the saints come back to life at Christ's death and remain in their graves until after Christ's resurrection? Or did they rise from their graves at the moment of Christ's death and go into the holy city after Christ's resurrection? Again, Hendrickson's question focuses on the central issue in his commentary. But is it reasonable to believe that these saints with glorious resurrection bodies remained in the darkness and corruption of the tombs from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning? The answer is it's not reasonable to believe such a thing. The force of the text is clear. They arose and came out of their graves at the death of Christ. It was the third sign that crowned the death of Christ with victory. After Christ's resurrection, those saints in their immortal bodies went into the city. And we read in the text that they appeared to many. We can only guess at the nature of those encounters. But surely they were impressive to all who experienced them. We remember that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said of the risen Christ that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And that at the time of Paul's writing to the Corinthians, most of those who met the risen Christ on that occasion were still alive. What would have been in their minds? Some wonder where the risen saints were from the time that Christ died until his resurrection And on that point, the scriptures are silent, as they are on many other things. But the scriptures are also silent about many of the places that Jesus was during the 40 days after his resurrection. As to what happened to the risen saints, Hendrickson's observation is helpful. It must be that after they appeared to many for some small period of time, God took them, now body and soul, to himself in heaven, where their souls had been previously. Thus, their resurrection from the dead became the sign that for the people of God, death died when Christ died. The resurrection of those saints revealed, as Hendrickson aptly observed, ready access to God's throne and to his heavenly sanctuary through the death of Jesus. The inheritance of a marvelous, rejuvenated universe and a glorious resurrection to a life never to be followed by death. When the devil tries to shake your confidence in the death of death, then dwell in the reality of which we have read in our text that many bodies of the saints arose 
when Christ died. They are the guarantee that none of Christ's redeemed will ever be lost. It is a summons as well to the unconverted. Because if you are unconverted, you have the greatest motivation now to trust in Christ today. Because he has vanquished death for all his people. So if you want to go through life knowing that you will rise to immortality on the day of Christ's appearing, then this text is a call to you to trust in Christ, to join the company of the saints today. The death of death. What a wonderful thought it is that Christ's death had impacts that will never end. And there are many, many people, bodies of the saints in their graves today, who on the day of Christ's appearing will rise to glorious immortality. May the Lord give you that confidence and comfort today in the truth that Christ has put death to death by his death upon the cross. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we thank thee for all that our Lord Jesus accomplished through his death. We thank thee for thy mercy to include this detail about the impact of that death. Now we pray that thou would use the word of God today to grant encouragement to our souls that in the face of death we may learn to look to the one who put death to death by his death upon the cross. So, Lord, hear our cry, we pray. Stamp thy word upon every soul. Grant that any who are without faith in Christ will turn to Christ in faith today and trust in his redeeming blood. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.